Hello, my name is Phil Agnew and you're listening to Nudge, the consumer psychology podcast. Now, Nudge is all about finding ways to improve your work, whether it's hacks to try, tactics to implement or new methods to follow. But in this episode, I wanted to talk about something different, not the tactical day-to-day part of your job, but instead your career in general. Today, we'll explore what makes a good career, how to grow a side hustle, and what you can do today to better prepare for the future. I'm joined today by Jeff Goff-Elf. Jeff is co-author of the award-winning book, Lean UX, and the Harvard Business Review book, Sense and Respond. Starting off as a software designer, Jeff now works as a coach, consultant, and keynote speaker, helping companies bridge the gaps between business, agility, digital transformation, product management, and human-centered design. His latest book, Forever Employable, is a career guide aimed at helping us all figure out how to future-proof our careers, create an economically viable side hustle, and to essentially become forever employable. To kick off the discussion, I asked Jeff about his career to date. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct to consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com slash service to do more for your customers today. I started my career as a broke musician. I spent uh, a good number of years trying to become a rock star with my friends, traveling around the United States in vans without heat and without air conditioning. And uh, we were lucky if we got a hotel room to sleep in most nights after the gig. Those were good days. This was in the 90s. And what was interesting is that I got tired of being broke. Uh, Trying to become a rock star is not exactly a money-making operation. In the late 90s, if you could spell HTML, you could get a job because the dot-com boom, Web 1.0, was starting to happen. And so I got a job doing exactly that. That was fun and interesting and paid a little bit of money consistently. I very quickly realized that I was working at the kind of the end of the cycle. I was being told what to make and I decided I wanted to move up the up the waterfall a little bit. I read a book called 
information architecture for the World Wide Web, which which changed my life. It really had me think about where I wanted to participate in the creation of software products. And it was really uh, more about the organization of the information, the interaction design, the user experience. And so I began doing user experience design. And I spent the next 10 years working through a series of user experience and design and interaction design jobs, initially as an individual contributor, and then on to being a manager, leading design teams, leading product teams, doing product management. And I did this for about a decade, really kind of following the very traditional career path. And then I woke up on the morning of my 35th birthday, January 31st, 2008, in a cold sweat. The realization I made that particular morning was that in five years, I was going to become overpaid and unemployable. And this was a terrifying proposition for me. I was married. I had two kids. I had a house. I had two cars, the the full American dream. And the realization that I'd made was that when I turned 40, five years from January 31st, 2008, I was at a real risk of becoming obsolete. My, My design skills were okay, but they weren't getting necessarily any better. Uh, My salary requirements were growing every year. And the number of available positions was becoming more and more scarce. So the further up you go in the ladder, the less management jobs are as there should be. And especially kind of on a design or even a product management track, there weren't that many. And so I made a, a realization that that morning I resolved to stop looking for jobs, to stop doing that dance where every time there's a a, a reorganization in in my company, every time there's a shift in the marketplace, every time there's a new competitor, I panic. I have to update my resume, my CV, and and then start applying for new positions or reaching out to headhunters or recruiters. I decided I'm not going to do that anymore. And instead, I was going to have jobs find me. That was the, the resolution. And that was the big decision that I made on the morning of my 35th birthday. There's a problem with the typical career ladder. The further up you go, the fewer the positions there are. Jeff realized how few senior design positions there were in the world. There are hundreds of, of junior positions open at any one time, but the same isn't true for C-level positions. In his book, Jeff states that the number of chief design officer jobs posted online at any one time is just around 156. And this was before COVID-19 and the hiring freeze. What's really scary is that the further up the ladder you go, the more risk we take on as well. Things like mortgages, childcare and debt are all tied to your typical income. And the typical American family has just $8,863 squirreled away in their bank account. If your employer let you go tomorrow, most of us wouldn't have the money to survive for more than just a few months. To become forever employable, Jeff implores people to build their own platform. Here's how. I think the word platform is exactly right. This is what you have to create for yourself in order to become forever employable. Now, let's 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 unpack that a little bit. What does building a platform mean? Building a platform means that you are actively presenting yourself to your industry, to your colleagues, to the world as an expert in a particular field or a niche or a slice of that particular field. Now, the way that you do that is by sharing your knowledge. Today, there there is an infinite number of ways for you to share that knowledge. You can 
uh, write blog posts. You can create video content. You can uh, host a podcast or be a guest on a podcast. But there's much, much lighter ways for you to start to begin to present your expertise to the world. There are already conversations happening about the thing that you're an expert in. That's the nature of the of the web. That's the nature of the internet, right? Everybody's talking about everything all the time. Start to participate in those conversations wherever they take place. If your conversations take place on LinkedIn, participate in those conversations. Look for those threads. Look for those individuals who have already started talking about this and insert yourself respectfully and, and hopefully cleverly into those conversations. Offer your perspective, offer your insight, move the conversation forward with your contribution. Now, look, sometimes those conversations aren't going to take place in a, in a public setting, LinkedIn or Twitter or uh, other sites like that. Maybe there are private forums or private groups of specialists in your field that are happening. There's a lot of private Slack communities, for example, in, in almost every industry. Again, find your way into those communities, ask around, see what you can find, and begin to participate. That immediately starts to serve as a sense and respond loop for you to help you learn which bits of your expertise resonate the most. Because you know a lot, and you've got a ton of experience, and you can share a lot of different things. And finding that correct slice the, the, the bit of your expertise that will resonate most strongly with the people that you're trying to attract to you is going to take some trial and error. And that's okay. We want to build that feedback loop, that sense and respond loop, that idea of continuous learning by contributing to this conversation and seeing what kind of response you get. Contribute to that conversation and see what kind of response you get. Fire off a tweet about this thing that you did at work last week and see how that resonates. Jeff talks a lot about testing in his book. Previously, when I thought about A-B testing and trial and error testing, I think about marketing tactics, things we would try out at work. I think about Google, for example. Google run over 500 million tests a day, constantly testing different variants on their site. I'd never thought about doing the same for myself, trialing different messages to share, experiences to talk through. But it's a really smart idea because it can help you find a niche people are interested in. But what happens if your tests don't resonate? What if people don't like the A or the B test? Well, I asked Jeff just that. Inevitably, there's going to be some frustration in this process. Inevitably, at times, you're going to feel like you're shouting into the void. There's so much content out there. There are so many experts in every field, in every niche. And so the competition is stiff. One of the things that you're going to need to figure out is how to distinguish yourself, how to stand out in that crowd, how to uniquely deliver your expertise in a way that others haven't. And you're going to have to do that with persistence and consistency. The most successful people that I've seen who have built their platforms, who have developed this recognized expert status, who have become thought leaders, are persistent they are always talking about the same thing in the same way, even when no one's listening. Eventually, people start to listen. How long is it going to take? I have no idea. It could take a couple of weeks. It could take a couple of months. But the goal is to set your sights on what you'd like to talk about 
and keep talking about it and really think through what makes your expertise unique. For example, have you done marketing for a particular industry for a long time? So are you going to be the healthcare marketing guru? Are you going to be the healthcare marketing guru in the United States or in a particular uh, uh, slice of the healthcare space, right? A particular um, uh, medical condition, for example, right? Where are those unique slices that bring your experience to light better than others? It certainly didn't surprise me hearing Jeff talk about the importance of finding a niche and being unique. I've spoken at length on this show about distinctiveness and how it helps you garner attention and awareness. In Forever Employable, Jeff gives a great example of a distinct approach that I hadn't heard before. Voodoo Donuts have carved out their own niche in their marketplace by creating donuts that are completely unique. Voodoo creates bacon-flavoured donuts, oyster-flavoured donuts. They've made donuts that are doused in peanut butter in orange tango, coca puff breakfast cereal, and even a donut crushed in heartburn relief tablets. It's an extreme example, but finding a niche and being distinct can work. Now, let's say you found your niche. and Let's say you've started to create content that's actually resonating with your audience. You might now face a dilemma. Should you start charging for this work? After all, you're probably sinking hours and hours of your time into it. Does it really make sense to give it all away for free? The more you give away, the more comes back to you. And it's unintuitive because you'll say, look, I spent hours making this presentation. And for example, I would, I would estimate that I put in, if I have to write a brand new talk, I would estimate I put in 120 to 160 hours writing that talk, sourcing the images, perfecting it, practicing it, the whole thing. It's, it's, probably, it's probably four full-time weeks worth of work to get a talk to, to, to work like that. Why would I then post a video of that talk on my website and give it away? Why would I share those slides with anybody who wants to see them? Right? Completely unintuitive to me, especially given the level of investment you know, and, and work, <laughs> just simple work that, that, that I put into this. And what I've recognized is that there is this amazing effect that when folks can experience your content for free, they then want to bring it to others. And when they want to bring it to others, that is when your opportunity comes to monetize that content. So for example, if you go to my website today, you will see half a dozen videos of my keynotes from various events around the world, each one being a different talk. And, I, and like I said, I've spent at least a full, you know, a full-time month perfecting those talks and then giving those talks. And certainly by the time those videos were made, I had practiced those talks in front of audiences many times. So not everything I do is free, but the overwhelming majority of it is. The newsletter is free. The blog posts are free. Uh, videos, podcasts, for the most part, are free, right? But then when it comes to the direct interaction with me, can you coach me? Can you teach a class? Can you come give a talk? Can I work with you directly? Can you consult on this engagement? Absolutely. That's when you monetize it. Basically, it, this is, you know, it, for the marketers out there, this is content marketing, right? It's content marketing 101. The third book that I wrote is a book called Lean versus Agile versus Design Thinking is a direct result of me putting content out there, that content resonating and me increasing the level of investment and that content resonating some more, 
right? I, I tweeted about this idea. That got a lot of traction. I wrote 500 words on it about my blog. That got a lot of traction. I expanded that to 1,000 words and put that on Medium. That got even more traction. At the time, it was the most read thing I'd ever published on the internet. And that led to a, a very short six, 7,000 word book that I sell. The book is relatively low priced, but I sold over 10,000 copies of that book. And to me, that came out of giving all of that information away. If you, if, you, if you follow me for a while, everything that's in that book is in my talks, is in my blog posts, it's in my tweets, it's in my LinkedIn updates, right? But now it's consolidated in a book that I charge money for. And that starts to come back to me time and time again. And I've used that model repeatedly. We've spoken about the power of free before on this podcast. And we know that our behavior changes dramatically when we give something away for free. Robert Celladini documents this in his book, Influence. He explains how in the 80s, the religious group Hare Krishna utilized the power of free by offering flowers to people at airports and then requesting a donation. They found that people who had received this free flower donated significantly more than those who had not received a flower, despite the fact that most of these flowers were immediately dumped in the bin. Now, this is almost a worthless gift, but the tactic allowed the group to produce large-scale economic gains and funding, eventually raising enough cash to create 321 centres in the US and abroad. We clearly highly value free items. For Jeff, the tactic means he'll usually generate more business simply by giving more things away. Another classic Cialodini study involved measuring tips at a restaurant. He asked one group of waiters when offering the bill to say, for you nice people, here is an extra free mint. That one action resulted in a 23% increase in tips given versus the normal control. Anyway, back to Jeff, who goes on to explain the benefits of becoming forever employable and how to stay relevant. There are a ton of benefits that you can reap once you become forever employable. First and foremost, for the most part, you can live wherever you want. And that's something that we've taken advantage of as a family. We've relocated from the United States to Europe. And that allows us to live the kind of life that we would like to live. And I can still do the work that I want to work because the work becomes lo location agnostic after a while. Unless you're specializing in a particular geographic region, right? That's the, only, that's the only difference there. If you choose to plant your flag as an expert that is somehow geographically tied, uh, then you, you may not be able to, to reap that reward. Um, the nice thing is I can, you know, at the moment, knock on wood, I can pick and choose the work that I do. I can augment the work that I do. For example, the beginning of my path towards forever employability, I didn't do a whole lot of coaching work. I didn't enjoy it. I didn't look forward to it. I didn't try to sell it. These days, the bulk of my work is coaching work. I genuinely enjoy it. I like doing it. And for me, it, it, it's, it's beneficial to both the, the, my clients as well as to me. I will caution you this. Uh, look, before actually before the caution, the other benefits are things like working from home, which I know we're all doing at the moment. But working from home has tremendous benefits. You can travel when you need to. Uh, you can you can see your family when you need to. You can take breaks when you need to. There's a real opportunity there as well. But uh, I I will caution that there is a there is the question of relevance. You know how do I stay relevant as I continue to do this? And the act of staying relevant is the act of that continuous sharing and learning. 
that continuous content marketing, the continuous uh, ideation and conversation. And if I had to estimate, I would estimate that at least 50% of my time, at least 50% of my time is spent on that. So I'd say half my time is spent on delivery of the work. And then 50% of the time I spend creating content, sharing content, participating in conversations, engaging with the community, that type of thing. Now, that's my experience. I know there are others who, who are at the state of their career who don't have to do as much. I feel obligated to do it. I feel motivated to do it. And I enjoy it. I really like the, those conversations. I like being part of the community. So keep in mind that once you begin to establish yourself, that sharing and learning, that continuous loop, that continuous learning cycle, that doesn't go away. You're going to have to maintain that to stay relevant, to stay top of mind, so that as the conversation evolves, your thinking evolves, and then your services evolve as well. That's almost it for today, but there's one final point I'll leave you on. Now, when listening to Jeff, you may think the scale of this challenge is huge. How could you possibly build an audience big enough to allow you to go freelance and develop a living off your side hustle? I would have guessed that the number of people you would have engaged the size of your audience would have to be around the 100,000 mark, or maybe even bigger. But apparently that's not the case. Lee Jin, a partner at Andresen Horowitz, a well-respected venture capitalist firm, suggests that the number of people you need in your audience is surprisingly lower. In fact, it could be just 100 people. Lee states that many freelancers can generate around £1,000 per year off each of their fans, providing a generous income of 100000 in total, assuming you have 100 fans. It sounds unlikely, but he's got some great stats to back it up. On Patreon, for example, the average initial pledge amount has increased by 22% over the last two years. Since 2018, the share of new patrons paying more than $100 per month has grown by 21%. And on e-learning platforms like Teachable and Podia, the number of creators earning more than £1,000 per year is growing at 20%. Whether it's 100 fans or 1,000, your audience just doesn't have to be as big as it used to, with new mediums to support creators and a shift from traditional media to diverse media, many content creators can support themselves with a much smaller audience size. That is all from me today. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Nudge. If you've enjoyed hearing Jeff speak, then you'll love some of what he's written. His book, Forever Employable, is a brilliant step-by-step guide for anybody looking to completely go it alone or anybody who's just looking to get a side hustle up and running. I've added a link in the show notes to grab a copy. Um, And if you do buy one, please do leave him a review on Amazon. That makes all the difference for new books on the site and will really help him. If you're in the mood for leaving more than one review today, maybe you could also leave a review for Nudge on iTunes. That really helps too. And if you haven't already, please sign up to the Nudge mailing list using the link in the description. Do that and I'll send you an email every time a new show goes live. Thank you again for listening. Cheers. Thank you.